Welcome to Fireside Breakdowns. I'm Robin. And I'm John. Together, we research and break down complex issues facing our society, and we bring our findings to you every week. Our promise to you is to bring honest analysis backed by research, to skew our bias towards what can factually be supported, and to try and make it clear when we're giving our opinion versus speaking about actual research. Naturally, we're human, and our blind spots and our biases will show through, but our goal isn't to convince you to think any certain way. We want to give everyone a foundational understanding of these complicated topics so that together we can discuss and address them in a thoughtful and beneficial way. Due to the nature of our podcast, some of the things we talk about can get pretty heavy, and they might be divisive. But we try to lighten the mood and avoid too much doom and gloom. Still, we suggest getting comfortable and maybe having a good drink on hand as we work through this stuff. Welcome to our fireside. episode on what exactly is considered a first, second, and third world country. I actually think that's now considered an offensive term. That was in parentheses. And whether or not America could still be considered a first world country anymore. And, or, what are the new technical terms? So that's exactly what we're going to do in this episode. We'll look at where those terms came from in the first place, and what characteristics defined each group. Then we'll talk about the problems with those classifications and what terminology is considered more appropriate for the times that we're living in now? And of course, we'll end with some good news. I have a correction to make. Oh. Based on, from one of our last episodes. I heard from my Armenian friend. <gasps> yes. She wanted to make it very clear. This was her only quibble. Her only quibble. She wanted to make it very clear that the Jinners are not... Armenian. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the Kardashians okay. are. <laughs> Apparently, <laughs> there may have been some confusion, or I had mentioned a Jinner wrapped in there. So, dear listener, do not be confused. The Kardashians. Oh, gosh. Um, and we did talk about it a little bit, and after talking with her, I think sort of the drive that we are getting at that it's a very culturally and geographically mixed region or influenced region because of just its history and everything. It's not really, you can't just say an Armenian is a person of color just because they're Armenian. Gotcha. No, it's, mm -hmm. they're, they're probably, or a minority group uh, because they, they might be, but they might not be. Um, she also pointed out that Armenia <laughs> was in, the Caucasus, uh, which would be where the phrase Caucasian <laughs> comes say, from. They, they are 100% <laughs> the definition of Caucasian. So, ethnically, That's yeah, at their roots, the whitest white you know. That's what that is. That's hilarious. Yeah. So, uh, I'm sure, I'm sure we had many listeners on the edge of their seats as we tried to figure that one out. So yeah. now... That is, that is where we're landing on that. 
All right, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah. Uh, so before we get started on this particular topic, I want to do a audience participation exercise because everybody loves those. Everybody. Everybody totally loves those things. <laughs> really, though, try doing something if you're listening to this or as you listen to this. It's super simple. I want you to imagine a third world country. Try to picture it in your head. What do the roads look like? The buildings? What are the people wearing? What do they look like? What's the weather like? What does everything feel like in this imaginary or imagined third world country? Um, And as we work through this episode... Hold on to that image. Just take a few moments right now. Really solidify that. All right. We will call back to that image later on in the episode. But I wanted to do it now before we started talking about, you know, its history and some of the implications and everything. That way... Hopefully, hopefully, by the time we get to the part where we talk about that particular imagined scenario again, uh, we can see kind of how our brains automatically process that word. Yeah. Okay, so I'm just going to, like, out with mine right now because... I'm not really going to have a whole lot of time to reflect on it as we're like working through all the research well, here. Well, yeah, we, we, we're doing the job here. Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, growing up as a kid in the 80s and the 90s, the term third world played a huge role in how I defined countries that were not America or, you know, in the parts of Europe that featured heavily in like the media that I consumed. Um, and I, I honestly don't recall hearing very much about the first world. Like nobody ever told me oh you're a first world kid and I definitely didn't hear a single word about the second world I kind of like I think I assumed as I especially as I got older there had to be a second world if there was a first and Mm -hmm. a third um but you know you didn't hear anything about it but when you say picture a third world country those commercials for the organization feed the children where little Ethiopian kids with swollen bellies, are crawling around on mountains of garbage while flies crawl all over their bodies, are burned into my mind. And I think they're burned into the mind of any child who watched television with commercials in it at any point Mm. in their life. Um, Because, again, this was back before we could, like, skip commercials or fast forward. You had to, like, get to the remote and change the channel. Right. And, you're I mean, you're always taking a risk that you might miss something when you come back or... If you're like me who had a little knob TV in my bedroom, because I was a weird child, like you got to get up and go across the room and like change the thing. So we all saw those commercials and they're all burned into our mind. And we were trained with to look with pity basically on the third world countries that oh, had yeah. far less than we would ever have, or at least according to our childlike imaginations. Right. So when we were asked to break down this topic, I was like, for sure, I've got this covered, right? First world nations are rich, third world nations are poor, and then there's probably a second world in there somewhere. But as we'll get to, you know, through this entire episode, I, well, as usual, I wasn't as right as I thought I was. I'm shocked. 
Are you uh, shocked? I, I'm, I'm stunned. <laughs> but no, I, I the same. I was in the same boat. I, you know, third world carries a weight to it yeah. that you know my upbringing and everything that I experienced growing up kind of informed that told me told told me exactly what to expect. You know what third world was, and um, I think uh, the image that automatically comes to my head the immediate one is that a uh, really famous national geographic uh photograph of the um the little kid who's like hunched over in the fetal position and yeah super skinny and there's a uh vulture in the shot just like waiting yep that's the that's the one that story and um oh sorry and now I'm thinking about the whole story and the, the context and the photographer and it's just like, ugh. 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 It I know. breaks my heart. But it's like, but, even growing up poor, there was always like, well, you're not third world country yeah, poor. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, there are, there are starving kids in Africa. Yes. The third world country was used as a, as a, as a sort of like threat. Not like a, that's not the right word, not a threat necessarily, but it's sort of like a, you know, the the specter of yeah. what could be. And I better appreciate what I have. Exactly. Yeah, that was definitely a stick held over us 80s and 90s kids. Yeah, right? Finish your food. There are starving kids in Africa who would kill for that. Right. I, I actually definitely heard that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, I think, I think if we're going to try to tackle and unpack... Some of this, we've got to start with where on earth those classifications came from and what exactly they mean. So actually, this concept of the three worlds seems to come from kind of an unclear and muddled background, even with all the research that we do. The research all said it comes from an unclear background. But (laughs) but credit for the idea is generally given to a French demographer named Alfred Sovey who introduced this idea in a 1952 essay called Three Worlds, One Planet. Now, Sovie used this idea of three worlds because it drew direct parallels to the three estates that were used to describe society in pre-revolutionary France. In that model, the first two estates were the clergy and the nobility, and then everybody else was lumped into the third estate. And so... Sovie made this joke that the capitalist world and the communist world could compare with these first two estates and that the rest of the world, like the rest of French society, was kind of lumped into this third and other group. And the way he worded and presented this idea was almost like an inside joke to the French. They knew exactly the point that he was trying to make. A famous French pamphlet distributed in 1789 described the third estate as a social force independent of the first and second estates, the clergy and the nobility. And as the pamphlet put it, what does the third estate ask? To become something. And then Sovie drew a direct line to this notion by writing in his essay, this third world ignored, exploited, and despised, exactly as the third estate was before the revolution, also wants to become something. I love classification categories that are like you're either column a column b or other right um the (laughs) this 
idea comparing the 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 worlds to the estates stayed fairly relegated to french and kind of broader european discussions of social science for a few years and then in 1955 leaders of several newly independent states in asia and africa uh, met in uh, bandung indonesia i'm assuming it's bandung (laughs) to hold a conference that kickstarted something called the Non-Aligned Movement. And basically, this was a group of countries that opted not to side with either the Western or Eastern blocs in the Cold War. Over time, that movement has grown to include about 120 countries all over the world that now work to develop multilateral cooperation outside of influence of the world's superpowers. The phrase, first world, second world, third world, began showing up in English in 1958, so about six years after Soviet coined it. And it was used in a speech by Eric Johnston at that point, who, he was the president of the Motion Picture Association of America. Yeah, uh, that's totally what I think of when I think that, global economic third world yeah definitely i know i i I actually tripped over that as i was reading it because i was like wait a minute that doesn't what (laughs) um so yeah uh, hollywood of course controls everything we all know this uh that is a joke that is 100 percent a joke nobody read into that (laughs) anything other than me making fun of the people who actually believe that (laughs) president eisenhower had appointed Mr. Johnston to build support for foreign aid to potential allies. So Johnston made the point that after World War II, much attention had been focused on the communist and the Western world. But meanwhile, a new third world had born out of old colonial empires. Johnston added, Today, this third world challenges our leadership, our energies, our own aspirations. So these associations that we have of the terms first world with affluence and third world with poverty are actually kind of circumstantial. Being a part of the first world meant alignment with capitalist economic systems and the large countries that used them to wield power, even if you weren't one of those large countries. And this kind of economic and social power is very often accompanied by general and overall affluence. Conversely, many of those third world countries, those unaligned countries, were impoverished former European colonies, and then the group also included, at the time, less developed nations in Africa, in the Middle East, and Latin America, and in Asia. And because many of the countries that were included in the group, the third world, were impoverished, the term came to be used to refer to the poor world in general, kind of regardless of political alignment with either the Western or the Eastern Bloc. Right. And that categorization was always messy at best, as might be very apparent to you at this point. This grouping of countries does include and has always included both capitalist and communist countries, both wealthy and impoverished nations. They're all just nations that were unaligned in the global game of chicken that was the Cold War. But, but... Do you want to make it even more complicated? Because we can do that. We always want to make can, it more complicated. That's what we thrive on here at Fireside Productions, our 
complicated topics for our podcast. Let's take just a second to talk about the fourth world. So this term came into use in 1974 with the publication of a book called The Fourth World, An Indian Reality, by Shushwap Chief George Manuel. The term refers to nations, cultural entities, ethnic groups, of indigenous peoples living within or across state boundaries, nation-states. Okay, but then, just to make things even more muddy, you ready for this? We have an interpretation of this model called the three worlds theory, which comes to us from none other than Mao Zedong himself. In this version, the U.S. and the former, now, USSR, are included in the first world. The second world includes Japan, Canada, Europe, and the countries of the global north. We'll talk about that a little bit later, too, kind of. It's basically just another convoluted term that refers to the mostly wealthier countries in the northern hemisphere, but also includes wealthy countries in the southern hemisphere. Anyway... And then the third world, which includes the countries in Africa, Latin America, and continental Asia. These, uh, <laughs> the lines that delineate who is in what group are more gerrymandered than most of Seriously. the states here in the U.S. I was like, oh, yeah. The logic, um, man. The logic. It's great. Yeah, it's, I mean, so what it all boils down to, really, the, the very short sweet summary of it is most people most historians tend to agree that Sovian his ad- adaptation of the three estates to the various actors in the cold war are where this all comes from so it, it it's so weird because the first world was capitalist and america and the second world was communist and russia and the third world was capitalist and communist and wealthy and poor and everybody else. Right. It was basically just us. like, if you were not attempting to wield power in this Cold War situation, you were lumped into the third world. Because no one was paying if, attention to you. Yeah. I wonder if that made Switzerland a third world country. Were the Swiss neutral in, oh in the Cold gosh. War? Hold on. That's worth a Google. Stand by. I'm going to Google that. My guess is that they would automatically be lumped in with America and most of Western Europe because of a capitalist economic system and their otherwise political alignment with countries that were wielding power, even if they were not attempting to wield their own power. Technically, they were neutral in the Cold War. So, I... But they were anti-communist. Yeah. Like, they were specifically anti-communist. My guess is that they absolutely had to be, even if they, like, didn't actively put themselves, right? Because nobody, none of these countries, like, sorted themselves into groups and said, I'm in this one, I'm in that one. Yeah, that's true. So my guess is that generally most commentators would lump them into that first world. The first world, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, but this is why this definition is so... Thorny to wrestle with because it, it just falls short whenever you start throwing these these random scenarios at it. Right. Because I don't think anybody in their right mind would 
would would say that Switzerland is a third world country, either by the Cold War standard of the phrase or the modern sort of understanding of, of what third world means, which we didn't really get into now that I think about it. The phrase didn't kind of, it didn't stick to meaning these groups in the Cold War, right? Yeah. No, no modern American student hears first world or third world country and thinks Cold War. They think about economic factors or something like development or right. um, something along those lines. So that's something to note or that's something that is harder. It was harder for us to find and define is when it transitioned from one thing to the other. I think I was, I was reading a couple of things that said that the definitions changed uh, it, multiple times. It was never any one sort of right. thing that changed it, but uh, that the, the, the main changes I think were in the like, 80s and 90s when it started meaning specifically or sorry not specifically but started meaning similar to what it means today those sort of underdeveloped unindustrialized nations yeah i mean as as the standoff between the western nations and the communist nations disintegrated and as the ussr itself fell apart and more countries became independent there really wasn't a frame of reference for it anymore. And if you think back to, you know, how the whole thing got started, I highly doubt that Sovi was intending to put together any sort of geopolitical model that right, people would go off of, right? He was making yeah. a referential joke to his countrymen in France who would understand this reference that he was making. So, Hold on. Robin... <laughs> Robin? What? Did you just use academic speak to say that Sovi made the first geopolitical meme? I mean... It's entirely possible. <laughs> I think... I think what we're getting at here is that originally <laughs> this was a meme that got out of hand. That's... I mean, if you think it is totally true it's like it is it is that inside joke that nobody gets but everybody thinks that they get and it spreads like wildfire it's QAnon. it's QAnon. it is not you you shut your dirty mouth it is not (laughs) QAnon. that is for darn sure but it is absolutely a cultural reference that the rest of the world was like yeah no okay we get that yeah we'll take it yeah i'm and then i'm cool to the lingo And then it has extrapolated out to define an entire generation's perception of impoverished countries around the world. Yeah, multiple generations, multiple generations. That's, huh. And that, that is a great illustration of the power of cultural references. Yes, Uh, and also scope cream. Yeah. Gosh, we could have a whole series of series is, is about that it could be its own podcast <laughs> all right spinoff coming to you soon <laughs> fireside scope creeps i don't think that one will no i don't think that'll do as well so as 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 people have surely picked up by now as we've kind of stumbled around this 
the third world has always been a sort of catch-all with a really blurry definition. As historian B.R. Tomlinson said, although the phrase was widely used, it was never clear whether it was a clear category of analysis or simply a convenient and rather vague label for an imprecise collection of states in the second half of the 20th century and some of the common problems they faced. The We've already said it, this, this first, second, third world classification is, is out of date. It's kind of insulting and confusing because of the baggage it carries and the fact that there's no clear definition. And who is to say, really, which part of the world is first? You know, how can an affluent country like Saudi Arabia, neither Western nor communist, be a part of the third world? Not to mention, there's really no second world anymore at all. So, because once the Soviet Union fell, everything. Um, so, it's just, it's not great. It's not, not a great <laughs> term of art. It's not great. And it's, it's not like the first world is really the best in, in every way either. It's not like it is always the, the, the goal to be achieved, right? America has pockets of deep rural and urban poverty and paul farmer talks about the, these pockets of of seemingly third world conditions if you will and he he's sorry he's the co-founder of the nonprofit partners in health and a professor at harvard medical school so and he he sort of talks about how these pockets exist in otherwise quote unquote first world countries and how that sort of further muddles everything <laughs> All the muddling. Everything. All the muddling. This is a muddy episode. Well, and and that's a problem with any first, second, third terminology. It sets up this subtext of a hierarchy. First world in the cultural mindset implies that it's better than the other worlds because, at least in America, first is right. always best. We very rarely We're think number one. of things on a list just being in no particular order like they read at right. award shows. I mean, I want you to think about the top of the show, right? When we asked you to imagine what a third world country looked like, I'm willing to bet that that phrase ev evoked a mental picture of impoverished countries struggling to meet basic human needs. In fact, I'm willing to bet most of our audience probably pictured an African nation, maybe even a Middle East Eastern nation, or maybe India. Almost certainly not Latin America, we're willing to bet. And, and I bet that those images were crowded, right? Dirt streets, clusters of tin-sided shacks. Probably almost guaranteed that they were dark-skinned people. But these pictures aren't really accurate, are they? I mean, certainly not by the original definition. By that definition, the United Arab Emirates is third world. And yet they have some of the most advanced architecture in the entire world. Almost all of South America is technically third world, but... I'd honestly be surprised if someone legitimately thought about Brazil, although the slums of Rio de Janeiro would very closely fit the definition that we, we talked about earlier. Right. Even though and those countries, they do meet that original definition of the third world. Right. And the problem with that is that, especially because this is terminology that 
it, it seems to be anchored in the Cold War, right? So much has changed since the Cold War. Brazil has actually exploded as in terms of you know GDP and their modernization rather uh, of of the the country. Yeah, there are pockets, but there are pockets in the United right. States too that I mean Springfield is in the news all over the place now because they went in and literally like tore down the tent cities. I can't for the I'm, homeless population. I am and have been irate about that since I saw the tr- city trucks go through the median and the highway that's very close to my house and pick mm-hmm. up unsheltered people's belongings and throw them in a big rolling dumpster. I, I I can't. It's a it's anyway. Yes, we have we have those pockets. And the, some parts of the US just in general are more third world than some countries that are considered third world. You know, Rust Belt cities that are just husks of their former selves with struggling populations and schools that are literally falling apart. Coastal cities that get slammed over and over again with tropical storms and hurricanes leaving broken windows and abandoned buildings like so many toothless gaps. We currently have record-setting food lines and people dying because they can't get health care. So, is it fair to call America first world by this sort of mental picture of what we imagine the first world to be? We'll circle back to that later. I want our audience to think about it now and come to their own conclusions before we, we address that. I At the core of so much of the problematic nature of this terminology is that definition shift, right? It went from meaning simply three groups of nations in the world and and at one point in the early stages nations that were were fighting and striving hard to become something to make a name for themselves to right. this very western very american hierarchy based meritocracy based perception of first second and third so what does that mean for all of us in this modern age when very many of us are trying very hard to look outside of that really specific perspective? Well, the powerful economies of the West are still described as first world by many people, although now often it's in the form of an ironic or memeified jest, hashtag first world problems. Oh my, full circle. Started as a meme? It's coming back. It's oh. coming back to be a meme again. Yeah. The term second world has, again, become primarily obsolete. It's been obsolete for as long as I personally can remember. Following mm. the collapse of the Soviet Union and the region's division into independent countries as we now know them, some of which are striving hard for their own versions of democracy. And third world remains the most common of the original designations. But again, its meaning has come to represent our perceptions about a country's economic or development status rather than its political prowess or alignment. And for the reasons that we just discussed, many modern academics consider the label third world to be 
very outdated. So what terms should we use then to classify countries or groups of countries instead? I feel like it has to be said, when in doubt, it's always okay to just list the countries or the regions you're talking about. If you don't need a large group classifier, don't use one. But if you do... Some folks, some folks prefer the term developing countries to refer to countries once considered third world. And on the surface, it seems accurate. There are several countries in that group that need to develop parts of their infrastructure or their healthcare systems or their schools or what have you. And that's the style that NPR follows and the Associated Press Style Guide suggests using that terminology. It specifically says, developing nations is more appropriate than third world when referring to economically developing nations of Africa, Asia, and Latin America. And even some of the people who live in these so-called developing countries are fine with that term. But some people are absolutely not fine with that term. Like, for example, Shosa Kessi, who is a social psychologist at the University of Cape Town in South Africa. She says, I dislike the term developing world because it assumes a hierarchy between countries. Same problem that we've, we've been talking about. It paints a picture of Western societies as ideal, but there are many social problems in these societies as well. It also perpetuates stereotypes about people who come from those so-called developing worlds as backward, lazy, ignorant, or irresponsible. In my view, she says, the developed and developing relationships in many ways replaces the colonizer-colonized relationship. The idea of development is a way for rich countries to control and exploit the poor. I, I feel like I have a thought there, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I, I feel like I, I want to address that colonizer-colonized relationship comment specifically, but I don't know how to go about it. And related to first world, third world, right? Right. Other than to point out that a lot of the countries that traditionally were the colonizer are now considered first world countries. A lot of the countries that were the colonized are the third world countries. And it is likely that the the only reason that the first world countries, quote unquote, are first world is because of their actions in colonizing these now third world countries and leveraging the resources that they found there to 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 prop up and turbocharge if you will their own development right i i had to read that a few times before i even knew what i thought about it and i i agree with that completely because the idea of a developing or an underdeveloped nation it carries with it the idea of potential, right? There's so much potential there, but it's just not developed. And so often we've seen in, in the traditionally colonizer countries and those cultures, the idea that it was their right purpose, destiny, mandate. Manifest destiny. To go into those nations with potential and turn them into whatever that particular cultural group considered to be the highest level of achievement, right? It's our job to go right, in there right. and convert you to Christianity. It's our job to go in there and teach you how to be civilized. Tame so, the noble savage. Yeah. Right. 
And, and so, you know, for people living in a cultural context where development looks like subdivisions going up across the street versus a, a person who lives in a country where development looks like people from the outside coming in and taking over, we're going to have two very different cultural understandings of that phrase. So right. I feel like that's important right. to acknowledge at least. Yeah. And I think part of what sticks in my, I, th I think I found the thought that was eluding me there. Um, this idea of being underdeveloped or developed being or some variation of not as developed as we as the we in the developed developing relationship, right? The developed party. Um, the idea that a country or a culture or even an individual person has not reached the same level of development uh, kind of carries this undertone of judgment on that culture, yeah. mm -hmm. saying, you know, you could be developed, you just insert reason for not being developed here you're you're lazy or you're unorganized or you're too savage to be to get way back in in the terminology and again from our point of view the developed country it probably doesn't land on our ears that way but if you're in a country that has been trying to develop for decades and decades and decades and may have had their development set back by these now developed countries right that might land really really wrong it might feel very frustrating to be labeled in such a way by a group that you don't necessarily um value that sort of opinion from exactly i'm i'm gonna make a cultural reference and i don't in any way mean to trivialize the weight of this but it calls to my mind a scene from one of my favorite movies of all time, A Knight's Tale, with the late, great Heath Ledger. And uh, the bad guy has just absolutely knocked him on his ass at some point. And he, he looks at this young man who is doing everything he possibly can to change his stars, right? I'm, I'm assuming that most of you know the plot of A Knight's Tale. If you don't, go look it up. Um, but this young man is working very hard to change his stars through whatever means are available to a medieval person at the time. And this bad guy, who is all of the things that this young man thinks he might want to be, looks at him and says, you've been weighed, you've been measured, and you've been found wanting. It sets this tone that there is a standard that is already established and that everyone who is still developing is still working to meet that standard. But those countries that set the standard are already there. And I think right. that's the difference. I think every country in the world should be a developing country. We should be working harder. We should be doing better. We should be improving. Development is not something that stops once you hit an arbitrary economic right. or cultural line. That's the other thing is developed implies done finished yeah we have reached the end game and and we're done with the race we cross the finish yeah so and that's just not accurate i think that same article uh the author went out and asked some maasai tribesmen about <laughs> yes. what they thought yes and the the quote really stuck with me and the maasai said that they the way that the phrase developing countries 
would translate to them, they would phrase it as uh, countries that are growing. Yes. And that phrase actually is, I mean, I think that's great, but it also goes back to what you just said. Every country should be a country that is growing, I think. I think just like an individual is never fully actualized, never the best version of themselves, there's always room for improvement. So the same can be said for a country. And uh, I just, I don't know, I really, really liked that mentality and the way they said it. to touch back on some of the things we've already talked about here, a lot of these so-called developing countries are already very developed in some respects. Um, Mead Over, who studies the economics of health interventions at the Center for Global Development, points out that in some countries where government safety nets are practically non-existent, uh, people step forward to help out. We here in the West, he says, tend to neglect our social networks and they wither away. We don't step up. We don't step out for our community in the same ways that these, quote unquote, developing countries already do. Uh, We have lost that sort of community. And that, I think, could arguably be said to be a, a... a step back when it comes to development, right? That we have lost the interpersonal connection with right. one another. And I can hear it now. There's charity. I do charity. John, Robin, we, I volunteer with my church. I get it. Like, I'm not saying, we're not saying that the United States or the West doesn't have this sort of charity or this outreach or whatever label that you want to call it. It's just right. that it is, it's not, I think the big, the heart of the matter is in the United States, (laughs) we have a phrase for it, right? It's a thing. We do charity. Whereas in these other countries, it's just you're being a person to another person. You're existing in the community. Yeah. It's just part of being in the community. It's not something that you specifically set out to do. So if developing and developed don't work for you, kind of don't work for me anymore. <laughs> Another <know>. solution, <laughs> the more we talked about it, the more I'm like, well, dang. Um, another solution is to go for geographic labeling. Kind of. <laughs> Remember when we were talking about the Maoist interpretation of the three worlds and how he referenced the North-South global divide? That's in reference to the idea that we can divide the world into the wealthier global north and the less wealthy global south. There's a really big hang-up with this theory that we kind of touched on a little bit earlier. There are countries of both types in the wrong hemisphere. Sure, there are many poor countries in the global south, but there are also countries like Australia and New Zealand and Argentina and Chile. Oh, and then there are the impoverished countries in the northern hemisphere like Haiti and Cuba. Long story short, This one's not your best option. I mean, we can go back to using a classification that represents most of the countries that fall into it, but it still still just doesn't fit well. Yeah, it's definitely going to rub some people raw. That's for sure. Right. It's going to chafe. We just, Robin, we can solve this. Take all the poor people, 
move them to the south <laughs> southern hemisphere. <laughs> and we'll just take New Zealand and everybody and move them up to the northern hemisphere. That way this works perfectly. Oh my gosh. And then you can only come you can only come live in the north if your uh your your income exceeds a certain threshold. There is no way this could go wrong. This no, is the it could perfect be, it'll the be perfect. perfect solution. When we it's try to divide won't. people on arbitrary boundaries like that, it always works Nothing. really, really well. <laughs> no problem. This will certainly not create a false class system <laughs> that oh, creates God. massive amounts of conflict uh, globally. You can probably Definitely. just forget we ever threw this idea out there. <laughs> but if you do, yeah. if you do want to keep things strictly economic, you could go with the classification used by the World Health Organization and the World Bank. These categories are based on World Bank statistics that divide up countries by gross domestic product, low income, lower middle income, middle income, and high income. The WHO often uses the term low and lower middle income countries, or LMIC for short. Sometimes the acronym is actually split into two and you get licks and mix. And they actually use that phrase. They actually say licks and mix. And that makes me very happy for... No reason other than it's so silly. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, we kind of nailed why uh, splitting people along economic boundaries might create some problems too. I think as uh, if you're being strictly objective about the observation, that would... Dividing a country by income might be and one of the better ways to do it. I still don't think it's a great way to do it the numbers seem to offer an objective way to divide the world but not great not rock solid neil phantom who has a awesome name and who also leads the world bank's open data initiative says that collecting the statistics can present a challenge because not every country does a good job of estimating its gdp looking at you russia north korea etc etc um, and talking about countries strictly in terms of their GDP is only helpful in, in a limited, you know, number of circumstances anyway. I, I can't see having a, a conversation with Robin over coffee and referring to the mix and her understanding exactly which group of countries that that represents without being directly involved with the organization that uses that acronym on a, as a matter of business. Right. right? Well, it just... And it, like yeah. GDP can only tell you so much, right? You can have a yeah. hunt, country with a high GDP and also the people living inside that country experience a whole host of problems, whether it be with their personal freedoms or, uh, you know, unequal division of wealth or lack of access well, to certain things. Like it only yeah, tells yeah. you how much that particular country is producing at a monetary value. It, it, doesn't convey any other nuance about the country and think about uh, the united arab emirates we talked about them already but it's a perfect example of uh, economic stratification because you have a very small group uh, relatively of incredibly wealthy people at the top and then you have a massive group of the labor force that are not wealthy by any stretch of the imagination and there's just a gulf between them I mean, you could say the same about the United States, probably, honestly. Oh, yes. If you start breaking down the, the 1% of the wealthiest population, I'm going to start sounding like Bernie Sanders here if I go on too long. <laughs> but 
if you look at the distribution of wealth in the United States, there is a distinct uh, stratification and an increasing move towards a two-layer uh, economic distribution as opposed to a gradient with a dis- you know a, a range of middle class. Mm-hmm. We are moving more towards a uh, you have the lower class, if you will, the poor class and the wealthy elite. And the only way that ends, I am pretty sure history tells us, is with guillotines and something about cake. So, I mean, but then, then future people could be having these same conversations about memefied inside references to stratification of American society before some great conflict, and maybe that'll turn into a way. I'm, I just can't. I been talking about so much civil war stuff with random people that i know i just my brain's burnt out on it i can't even fathom what kind of great geopolitical classifications could possibly come from this (laughs) i think the best term that we found in our research uh the the greatest geopolitical classification uh (laughs) and one that actually makes people stop and think would be the term majority world. Oh, yes. This one's my favorite. So it's gaining popularity. So it's good thing it's your favorite. I like it too. And it is great because not only does it serve as a sort of shorthand identifier for, you know, a group of countries, if you will, but also remember, also reminds you and me and just all of us here in the West that even with all of our wealth, all of our comforts, all of the great things that we have going for us, we are but a very small minority on the globe. According to the World Bank statistics, 80% of humanity lives on $10 or less a day. Yeah, it really changes your perspective when you when you're in a thought process and you, you know you you sub that in where you would go to say something like third world country right but you mm-hmm. sub in it's a majority world country and if you think about the fact that the thing you're getting ready to say applies to a majority of the world population mm-hmm. like if that doesn't cause you to just take a breath for a minute and definitely seriously consider what it is you're about to say then i mean then you are you're a rock solid. I don't know. Probably what, have all the all the subtlety and tact of a brick. Exactly. That's that's, that's how that's gonna go. Right. Yeah, I think that I, I liked it a lot because it also puts. It's not derogatory. Yeah. It doesn't have a subtext of any sort of underlying negativity. It's just. It's majority world. You just, these countries just are. That's just the way the world currently is. And if you can shift your thinking to to accept that, not not only say it, but really conceptualize what that means and accept it, you might start thinking about, well, why? Why is it that way? Why is it the majority world? How? How does the majority of the world survive on less than $4,000 a year? I mean, if you're listening to this and you make more than $4,000 a year, congratulations. Actually, more than $3,700 a year. Congratulations. Yeah. You are in the top 20% of the world. Of the 
world. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's a direct challenge. It is a direct challenge to this idea of more is better and hustle is ideal and, and we just have to keep working to get more and more and more. That's a very, mm. very Western, very capitalist mindset. But if you think about that 80% of humanity, they're just living. Sure, some of them are living in circumstances that they would trade almost anything to get out of. But there are also many Americans who are living in circumstances that they would trade anything to get out of. So little of that has to do with the actual monetary value of your life and your lifestyle. And a lot of that has to do with your perspective on the world around you and where you live and whether the society, the culture, the place that you live gives you the things you need to thrive, regardless of what the U.S. dollar amount is on your daily or yearly income. Hmm. So is America still a first world country? Oh, big questions, big questions. <laughs> the good news is that by any objective standard, yeah, America is first world. I mean, by the original definition, we literally can't be anything but first world. <laughs> I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to say the same thing. Like, yeah, actually, technically we have to be. We don't get to be anything yeah. else. But Yeah, we will always, by that definition, be first world. But even in this newer sort of, you know, developed country, quote unquote, sort of definition, this mentality that it is a, a shining city on a hill if you're a first world country I think that we would be very hard-pressed to say that we're not first world, comparatively. Now, that is not the same as saying that we are the best, right? I would, I strongly, oh, I just turned into Trump. (laughs) I want to break away, I hate using strongly like that. I want to break away from this idea that first world means best world. Yes, we're first world, but that doesn't mean that we are setting the standard or we should be what other people aspire to attain. I mean, some quick, quick Googling (laughs) to to get these stats. It was not much. But if we go by things like relative happiness of our citizens, right? The U.S. is only 18th in the world, 18th in the world. If we go by healthcare, we rank somewhere between... 27th and 47th in global healthcare, and that depends on your standard of measurement. But at the same time, we spend more than any other country for that healthcare. If we go by crime, we have the highest incarceration rate in the world and the largest prison population in the world, which, which I do want to kind of said if we go by crime, incarceration rate probably not a great reflection on overall criminality of the population for various reasons that we have discussed yes in many episodes we are to go back to our episode on representation america is way overrepresented in prison populations if we go up by the global standard it's bad it's bad representation go listen to the last episode Anyway, so on and so forth. There are many standards by which you can objectively say that the United States is not the best, but those do not make us not a first world country. Our podcast, we just happen to 
de facto focus on those areas where we need to improve, basically because they're all complicated topics and they need a lot of explanation. And it, we're trying to improve those as a as a global or sorry as as a country right now. We're working on those problems. We just can't agree on the best way to hit them. So yeah, I don't think any serious argument could be made to place us in anywhere other than a first world country category. Yeah. 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 I think, I think, I think we're getting to about pumpkin time here with this podcast. I think so we're... we can wrap it up with some closing thoughts. And I will. I um, will gladly wrap it up with some good news. But would you like to first? tell these kind kind listeners how they could give us the best christmas present of all by talking to us i would definitely do that i was just going to make sure that you didn't have anything else to say about first second third world before we hit that no i mean i feel like like we pretty much went over and over and over and over all over and over right i mean i agree yeah yeah i agree so the, the points to take away from this i think just Remember how you thought about what third world meant when we started this podcast and remember how that grew and the implications of that that we've talked about. And then keep in mind the global majority option that we talked about. Yeah, majority world. Sorry. Majority world. Yeah. Which Man, you could I also got use. The phrase wrong. You can also convert that to say minority world. Yeah. Um, you know, if you wanted to refer to a Western capitalist affluent country, you could say minority world. Right. Uh, true true so yeah just think about i think those are the my three big those are my personal three big takeaways which is why i also want everybody else to take them away because i am apparently narcissistic and think everybody should take away the same thing i did oh man if you want to tell me just exactly what you think about that statement uh or more preferably what you took away from this podcast and what you thought about it you can reach us in a plethora of ways uh, we have the facebook page which will allow you to comment to us directly there it'll also take you to our link tree where you can find a show uh sorry a platform to listen to the show on it'll also take you to um the place to rate this podcast it will walk you through that uh, there's a link there for that please 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 give us the best christmas present in the world and leave us a review. The reviews help the algorithms know where to send people. The Facebook page is Fireside Breakdowns. Uh, there's an Instagram of the same name, Fireside Breakdowns. We keep it simple here in our complicated podcast. And uh, if neither of those options work for you, uh, you can reach out to us directly at firesidebreakdowns at gmail.com. If your podcasting platform does not allow you to leave a review, you can leave one on Facebook, and we will happily take that one as well. Yes, if you would like so, to request a topic. Oh, yeah, there's that one. gladly respond. Uh, this as this user requested this, topic. And it was a great topic. I learned a lot from this. I so did thank too. you very much, uh, JW. I know your actual name, but I'm not going to say it because I, uh, I'm going to go by your Facebook handle, just in case. We are grateful to you for listening. Robin, hit us with some of that good, good news. All right, folks. I'm not going to mince words, not going to lie. 
It was really hard to find good news this time around. I went into my search for good news, fully confident that I could just pop in a stunning statistic like the one that says that between 1990 and 2015, the number of people in global severe poverty dropped by something like 36%. Something like 10 billion people were raised out of the most severe level of poverty around the world. Uh, in that time frame, however, every report that I found on that said, but also we expect global poverty to spike for the first time in 20 years um, due to all of this, uh, all of the complications of dealing with a global pandemic of a novel virus. Thanks, 2020. Thanks, 2020. <laughs> Thanks for ruining our great statistics streak. Yeah. But Making did we give up? Harder. No, we did not. Hell no. That is not what we do here at this podcast. We still consider those poverty statistics to be good news, but also we found more good news for you as we were dredging the internet for any relevant bit of good news because we do try to keep these relevant to the podcast topic. John remembered a tiny tidbit of information that he picked up somewhere along the way. Finland has been running an actual randomized controlled study of the impact of a universal basic income on the lives of recipients. If you don't know much about a universal basic income, the idea is that, the I guess the theory, the hypothesis is that if you give people a universal base income that is sufficient to meet the needs of their basic existence, they will have the stress of trying to provide for that basic existence relieved and therefore uh, pursue things that may be more fulfilling or profitable or beneficial to society as a whole. That's the basics of a UBI. This was a fully thought out two-year study backed by the parliament in Finland, and it's one of the first ever to be really actually conducted well on this concept. They released the results this last spring, and it actually had some really interesting findings. In that two-year study, a treatment group of 2,000 randomly picked, initially unemployed people received that guaranteed, unconditional, automatic cash payment of a modest 560 euros per month. That's currently just shy of $700 per month. And the results of that universal basic income were pretty darn cool. That actually led to a small increase in employment among that group as compared to a control population. And it did significantly boost multiple measures of the recipient's well-being and reinforced positive individual and societal feedback loops. In other words, compared to a control group, those people actually found more employment and they were happier because of the stress of having their, um, trying to meet their basic needs was relieved. Now, we have to caveat this. This is an incredibly, incredibly complex topic. And one small study, no matter how well executed, is going to be able to tell us, yes, a universal base income will work and should be Im implemented across the board, no matter what. It also can't tell us, no, this won't work and we should avoid it at every cost. But the idea that this is even being seriously studied is really exciting. And the data that it generates might completely turn how we think about things, especially from an economic and social perspective completely on its head. So the best thing about that is that we can look forward to more information about how this might actually help us in the future. 
To all of our listeners, thank you so much for putting up with this for the last six months. I cannot wait to roll into 2021 with all of you. Uh, If you're new here, thank you so much. Uh, We look forward to hearing from you. And everybody, take care of each other. (laughs) 